The new era of the DC Universe is here, at least in the film landscape. James Gunn has asked for assistance, and here we are to help. Episode 134 of The Byword begins now. Welcome into the Nerd by Word, the only podcast that is steeped enough in DC lore, uh, at least Dave is, to help James Gunn and Peter Safran as they build this new connected universe in film. On today's show, we're going to be giving the phase one, if you will, of the new DC universe. We're doing a hard reset as we move forward into the future. But first, it's time for... All right, Dave, this is a very apropos news story for today's episode. Yeah, so obviously, um, at time of this recording, a whole bunch of news has broken uh, leaks, if you will, from behind the scenes, uh, leading up to uh, what is going to be uh, the um, unveiling of uh, James Gunn and Peter Safran's plan for the DCEU. And a lot of the leaks are focused on things we are not getting. Uh, some of the leaks uh, may be accurate, others may not. James Gunn has uh, taken to Twitter uh, to state as much uh, that not everything that is being reported right now is accurate. However, there is one nugget in all of this that seems to be true, and we're getting additional reporting as of this recording right now, um, that seems to indicate that this is in fact accurate, and that is that uh, Wonder Woman 3 is not going to be moving forward at the very least with uh, writer-director Patty Jenkins. Um, the uh, initial report indicated that the movie was simply um, canceled, that Warner decided not to move forward with it um, because it did not fit with the uh, still-in-development plans for a new uh, cinematic universe based on DC Comics. But now additional information uh, has been released Um and it appears that uh, what actually happened is that uh, Patty Jenkins apparently either submitted a, a treatment or a draft script. Uh, uh, there's some disagreement on there. Uh, and that the studio had notes on how to make the movie work uh, with the um, new sort of larger uh, universe that is being uh, put together here and that Jenkins apparently decided rather than re rewriting the movie and, and making it fit with those plans, uh, she decided to uh, reject the studio notes and walk away from the project. Uh, so uh, whether there will be a Wonder Woman 3 at this point, moving forward with uh, Gal Gadot and um, uh, you know continuing that story uh, is in question. Um, Gal, of course, uh, is, is close friends with with Patty Jenkins. There's a, a chance that she will walk away from any uh, Wonder Woman three that does not involve her, um, and so that could put the kibosh on on a third movie in that particular franchise, and may require a reset for the Wonder Woman character moving forward. So it's it's an interesting uh, it, it's an interesting situation too because you're seeing all sorts of. Uh, leaks now, some some rather humorous and very obviously fake, uh, some you know may be credible of what uh, Wonder Woman three might have actually looked like. 
um, a lot of indication is that there was going to be another sort of um, tying in knots to, to bring Steve Trevor back yet again for a third outing, um, which, I, I, you know, to be completely honest, seems unnecessary to me. So if that if that is the case, then, um, you know, I probably would have had some notes too if I were the studio. But there is obviously a lot of um, table setting going on, and a lot of rearranging of chairs as James Gunn and Peter Safran are taking over here. And although there seems to be uh, some indication that they're not willing to completely reboot, but are interested in taking sort of what's best of the old DC Extended Universe uh, and, and, and try to move forward with that, which arguably could include, you know, Henry Cavill and Gal Gadot and, um, um, you know, various other actors not, you know, playing The Flash. Um that uh, there there is some possibility for some of the actors perhaps to move forward. Uh, however, there is definitely a behind the scenes creative direction change, um, and and it seems like not everybody's going to be on board with those changes. So, Chris, I'm interested to hear your take on this. There's a Hollywood Reporter article that that had some some interesting rumblings and rumors, um, but for me, I'm just you know this is contrary to the age of fandom and social media. I'm, I'm going to sit back, just take a collective deep breath and just wait and see till we actually hear official word. I've never been one for like giving too much credence for rumors and whatever to these quote unquote industry insiders um, until I see the official announcements from the official pages, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll wait for that. Um, you know, James Gunn himself went to Twitter and said some of it's true, some of it's absolutely not true, and some of it's a little bit true and a little bit untrue, some of it's in between. Um, so one of one of the uh, the big kerfuffles amongst fans is that it has been reported or at least rumored that a Michael Keaton-led Batman Beyond film is one of the casualties. Uh, and I'm really of two minds. I mean, you know, like, is, is that a movie I'd like to see? Yes, of course. Um, but if it is a collateral damage casualty of resetting this universe and moving forward in a cohesive direction, then so be it. The animated series that we all love is still there. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to wait and see until we get official word and I'm not going to hyperventilate. And I think that's probably a fair approach to take to some of this reporting. A lot of it looks like hyperbole right now. And there is a lot of indication that that some of the stuff may be inaccurate. A lot, there's a lot of reporting going on that Henry Cavill, for example, is now not returning as Superman after all. And I find not that that's impossible. It's certainly possible. There's always things shifting behind the scenes. But Cavill, uh, you know, very publicly now walked away from from The Witcher. Um, a franchise which he apparently likes a, a great deal. And I find it difficult to believe that he would walk away from that particular steady paycheck without having a contract already in place to return as Superman, if that's indeed the reason why he decided to leave. So there are a lot of things that I am not, uh, I'm still very dubious on some of the rumors coming out. Um, and the speculation on social media is absolutely through the roof at this point and, and really um, uh, just just borderline, as you said, like people are hyperventilating at this point, and I'm really not um, not interested in 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 going into full panic mode at this point. Um, I'm really just very curious. 
uh, what kind of plan they're putting together for, for the DC universe. Uh, m- more on our take on that, obviously, in just a little bit. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Like, there's there's definitely something going on behind the scenes, but I don't think we're going to be privy to what that is for quite a while yet. All right, Chris, what is your news story for this week? What you got? Well, we were recently treated to the the Game Awards, most of which I tuned out of because it was a Sony love fest. Um, but one of the cool reveals that we got was a trailer for... Um, Hellboy Web of Weird. It's a new uh, roguelite action adventure game set in the universe of Mike Mignola's Supernatural comic series. Um, And it looks really interesting. One of the notable shakeups is the change in voice actor. Lance Reddick um, is going to be uh, performing as as Hellboy. Uh, He was famously portrayed by Ron Perlman in both of the uh, film features, uh, feature films. And... um, Really excited about this. It, it seems like a comic book come to life, and it seems really kind of faithful in its adaptation. I'm not as well versed in uh, the Hellboy universe. I haven't read any of the comics, but I watched the first film and, and really, really enjoyed it. So, uh, what are your thoughts on this, Dave? I think it actually looks uh, like a like a fun little game, and I'm always in uh, when it comes to uh, adaptations of comic books into video games, much more so. Um, than adaptations of um, comic book-based movies in the video games, if you get my meaning here. Um, I think that when they go directly to the source material to create a video game, it's usually much more interesting than when they try to do something with you know, an, an adaptation uh, and then basically adapt an adaptation. There's just always something weird going on there. That, hence, you know, the legendary licensed movie video games are awful. Um, reputation that you know they have gotten in many cases very deservedly but when you look at stuff like you know the arkham video games or you know the most recent spider-man video games those sorts of things when they go kind of to the comic books for inspiration and then kind of adapt into their own direction much more interesting to me uh and hellboy is is such a cool franchise i've read a little bit uh it is a very very sprawling quote-unquote universe at this point and kind of difficult to get caught up on but what i have read is so very distinctive and cool uh, that I definitely want to read more. And I totally can see how this would work as a, uh, as a video game. Yeah. The art style, I'm not sure who did the art on the few Witcher comics that I've read, but it looks very similar aesthetically to the Witcher comics, which I greatly enjoyed. Yeah. The, the art style, you know, the, the Mignola art, uh, Mike Mignola's art style is so distinctive anyways. Right. So Hellboy has a, it's very own vibe. I mean, you can look at any, any Hellboy comic book. And even before you see the title character, you know exactly what you're getting into. Um, so if, if they're really riffing off of, off of that as their art style for, for the video game, that's just fascinating to me. I, I'm really into that. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. When we return from this, our first break, the Byword Big Talk comes back with our phase one of the DC Universe. <laughs> Welcome back for this week's Byword. And when the news of James Gunn and Peter Safran taking over as co-heads of the DC film universe, uh, Gunn put out a tweet asking and soliciting for advice for things that fans wanted to see. So we're taking him up on that offer, and we are coming up with a full-fledged phase one of what we want to see in this film universe. 
Uh, we're going to volley it back and forth from one film to another. Dave, you got dibs. What is the first film that you want to see in the new DCU? Okay, so before we go into the into this, I think we're going to have to set a couple of ground rules um, that are extremely important to understand some of the things that, that you and I are going to do here with these uh, movies that we want to see. Uh, the, the first thing that I think we're going to have to establish is as far as, at least as far as we're concerned, and we texted about this uh, yesterday, um, is that the, the very first movie in, in our particular DC uh, cinematic universe uh, is the Batman. I, I think that uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman, should be the Batman for the next DC cinematic universe. And before a whole bunch of people howl, both fans and detractors of the movie, let me go ahead and address the elephant in the room. How many Batman, Batmen do we need at this point? You know, we've had we've had Affleck, we've had the return of Keaton, which is going to be in the upcoming Flash movie, and, and we have Robert Pattinson's Batman. I mean, how many Batmen do we need? Do we really need to recast again? I think there's a very elegant way to integrate that version of Batman into um, a DC universe without uh, stepping on Reeves' toes. And that's just saying that the Reeves' Batman movies are about his early career. And then you can go ahead and say that the rest of the DC universe is sort of a flash forward when he, you know, opens up to a larger world and joins the Justice League and all that stuff. And so Matt Reeves can still play in his own little corner, but we also have the opportunity to have the same actor playing Batman just as an older version of himself, you know, let's say five or 10 years down the line or whatever you want to do. Um, and I think that would work uh, extremely well in us not having to reestablish another Batman yet again. Um, the second thing that I think is definitely a ground rule here, uh, and we talked about this a little bit before recording, is that there's a big difference between Marvel and DC in, in that Marvel uses this sliding time scale in its comic books as a way of keeping its characters, quote unquote, young and fresh. Um, and, and DC has does that to a little bit of an extent, but much more something that DC has done over the years is rely on legacy, on the idea that characters grow up, they develop, you know, the Teen Titans grow up and become Titans, Robin becomes Nightwing, Kit Flash becomes the actual Flash, people grow and develop, and, and there is a sense of legacy, of mantles being passed along. And that is something that we're going to have to establish in a cinematic universe as well, uh, simply that this is a universe that is lived in, you know, just because we make a Flash movie doesn't necessarily mean it's about the very first Flash and we need to have this, you know, extensive origin story. It is okay to say that there were previous superheroes in this world. It is okay to have a JSA that operated during the 40s and 50s. That opens up additional story possibilities and kind of divorces us a little bit from having to make every movie an origin story. Um, let's just go ahead and say this is a lived-in world akin to something like Star Wars, you know, quote-unquote A New Hope, right? The original Star Wars movie dumped us into the middle, right? And and we can argue about how good the prequels were. But it was always a lived-in universe. And I think any DC cinematic universe needs to be lived in as well. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I I said this before recording, but um, it is it is a bit exhaustive, you know, for, you know, multiple iterations, multiple... Um, even even Marvel, DC, uh, what have you, of of watering down uh, the source material to make it quote unquote palatable to the general audience. I think it's I think it's a little bit of you know a slap in the face to 
to fans and even even to general consumers and you know casual fans um because you know in the advent of google and wikipedia and you know a number of internet resources that you can go and research the source material and do a quick deep dive into something. We don't have to distill everything to its most based elements and we don't have to make everything an origin story. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of making a lived in universe. Yeah. Fantastic. So, um, obviously if we're going to talk about the first movie on any, uh, DC cinematic universe slate, uh, for me, we have to begin of course with Superman. Um, and again, here we are in this situation where we're not even sure, is Henry Cavill returning? Is he not returning? Are we starting over? I'm perfectly fine with the notion of Henry Cavill returning and kind of doing a soft reboot on the character where we're just basically saying, look, this is how he is now. And, and you know, Man of Steel and, and all that, take it or leave it. Um, you know, let's just move forward. Um, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Cavill in the role uh, is great, and I think he deserves a really good Superman movie. And so if we're going to make a Superman movie, I know I've heard a lot of different stuff bandied about uh, stuff we need to do with Superman. I know a lot of people online are talking about the title of Man of Tomorrow to kind of go along with Man of Steel. There was also a recent uh, you know, animated film called Man of Tomorrow, and so some people are like, well, just like that animated movie, we should bring in the Parasite as a villain or, or Mongol as a villain or this or that. Um, and I think it's much easier to reestablish Superman um, and who he is to go with a story that did exactly that, reestablished Superman in the comic books and reestablished what he stands for. Uh, and that is Action Comics number 775, uh, commonly known as What is So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way. I propose using this as a jumping on point. Uh, for a, a movie, um, we could make it simple and call it Superman Truth and Justice. Uh, the plot of the comic book is basically that there is a, a new team of superpowered vigilantes. They call themselves the Elite. Um, they are led by a powerful uh, telekinetic. His name is Manchester Black. Um, and they are going around and like brutally dealing with, with criminals and, and killing people, executing them. And they get a, a massive uh, approval from the public for their violent um, tendencies towards, you know, uh, towards criminals. And it kind of causes Superman to take a step back and do some navel gazing. And it's like, you know, am I still, you know, of the times is how my approach still the right approach is, you know, am, am I still, you know, it, with the times or is this new generation, do they have the right idea? And so he has to kind of deal with what does he do with about these people? You know, is, is he going to let them, you know, do their thing and fight crime in their own way? Or is he going to oppose them and, and, and stop them? And of course, we get an absolutely fantastic throwdown where Superman single-handedly has to go through the entire elite, which are not, you know, they're not shabby. They really do give him one heck of a fight. He ends up pretty battered by the end of it. And he has to reestablish that, yes, he stands for truth and justice. And, and he is going to continue being that even if those values are quote unquote old fashioned. In a lot of ways, the comic book looks directly at the reader and says, you know, this was back in 2001 and says, you know, all these extreme, you know, 90s comics you're into and all these extreme characters that run around and execute people, they're not better than Superman that Superman is still the moral center of DC Comics and should be. And I think that is the perfect story to, to do 
on the big screen to establish that this is, in a lot of ways, an old-fashioned but still relevant and timely Superman that we're going to get in this new DC Cinematic Universe. What say you, Chris? You see, this is really funny because I thought you were talking about the recent comic book series, Superman Truth and Justice. But I think that just kind of alludes to the timelessness of it. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of this. And um, I think it's it's a welcome uh, kind of ethos to kind of put out there and kind of put our, you know, stamp your flag in the ground and, and kind of make that statement. Um, so I immediately think, of course, of, of, you know, something like Superman smashes the clan of like a timeless <clears throat> kind of ethos that that really kind of rings true no matter where you're at. And I do think it doesn't, you know, it shouldn't be a one-to-one adaptation, obviously, you know, um, much like, um, you know, for example, some of the Captain America movies, they, they adapted certain storylines, but they also riffed on them and changed them to make them feel, you know, different and fresh. I think there are things to do with this. There was a Superman versus the Elite uh, animated movie a, a while back, I, I uh seem to recall that adapted the story as well there are things you can do with the story to play with to expand it a little bit it is you know of course sort of a oversized single issue of a comic book um and you can play around with that a little bit but what i like most about it also it's not an origin story but it still speaks to the essence of the character so you're able to establish superman without establishing superman if you get my meaning and i think that's really the perfect jumping on point for a new DC cinematic universe. I, I'll piggyback that by by saying that I think Gunn even said this, that Superman is like the most important thing to get right. So that gives me hope, you know, pun fully intended. I, I totally agree. He's just, he's such an important character and such a, a an essence of what DC stands for. And I, I really, I hope they get him right here. All right, Chris, um, I'm not surprised that uh, this is your uh, your go-to uh, second movie for our new cinematic universe. So deliver what you got. All right. So as our fans know that I am a mostly Marvel consumer and the extent of my DC reading knowledge is almost exclusively the homework that you've given me, um, which it's, it's high time we had another homework episode, friendo. Uh, but... So I'm I'm coming with recommendations, you know, kind of coasting on vibes, and then I'll, you know, maybe kick it to you for your encyclopedic knowledge. But I really want like an Amazon-centric film. So I don't know of a specific run or whatever. I think you've got one in mind. Um, I think for me, one of the one of the things that left me a bit uncomfortable with the first Wonder Woman film, as as well received as it was for the most part, is how quickly we just kind of brush past, you know, the Amazons and that entire world. And I, I was thinking something along the lines of like Eternals where we're kind of embedded in that. And just there's so much content there that is ripe to mine and, it, and let it breathe. And we don't have to rush into man's world. Bring, give us Nubia, give us all of the different Amazons and their different personalities and just kind of let that sit and stew and let it breathe. And, and that's what I want. I want a full-fledged just Amazons of Themyscira without no men, no men necessary, especially Steve Trevor. <laughs> I see. I really like this idea. Um, I, I do think uh, that if you are willing to continue with Gal Gadot in the role, that you technically don't need 
an upfront another Wonder Woman movie right away. You can go ahead and punt back and do an Amazon's movie kind of focused on Themyscira. And, you know, there are there are things, uh, even Wonder Woman movies, uh, uh, Wonder Woman comic books, I mean, that are Themyscira focused that you could probably do. I'm thinking of something like um, The Circle. I think that was Gail Simone. Um, that one's really, really good for something that's like uh, involves like you know hidden truths on Themyscira and, and and what's going on there. There's some good stuff there, and obviously a lot of the current output focused on Themyscira is really good as well. Um, the Amazons have a, a very long and 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 storied history, and there's all sorts of really cool storylines. Um, I even think it would be fair to go back to some of the the George Perez stuff from uh, Post Crisis on Infinite Earths that sort of reestablished Wonder Woman and kind of rewrote her lore. I think there's a lot of cool Amazon stuff in there as well. Um, however, I, I will also say that if we're going to go ahead and do a new Wonder Woman movie, um, that's just completely straight up Wonder Woman and has to establish a new Wonder Woman. I put in our notes here that I think uh, Greg Ruckus, uh, uh, Hikataya, I'm very, very bad at pronouncing stuff. Um, I'm working on that. Uh, that particular comic uh, would be absolutely fantastic. This was, um, it was Rucka's first uh, Wonder Woman story, if I remember correctly. And this was prior to him taking over the book and having a really fantastic run on the character that I think should serve as a lot of inspiration moving forward. I particularly like how he uh, established her as a ambassador. So she's basically almost like a political figure, an ambassador from Timascira, who's you know have, has to deal with the U.S. government and and the U.N. and all these things. There's there's really cool stuff that came out of that. Um, but the particular story I'm referring to is 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 really the anti-Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, and I I, I know that sounds harsh, but it is true. I, I think. Batman v Superman, in a lot of ways, should have focused a lot more on the philosophical differences between Batman and Superman, rather than manufacturing extended uh, action set pieces without any heft behind them. And and this is the exact opposite of that, in that there isn't a lot of um, action set pieces. It's a short story, so you can probably weave a B plot in there and have a proper villain and, and a good beatdown, you know, as a climax if that's what you wanted. But the the underlying idea here is very simple it's it's a greek tragedy basically and it focuses on on notions of like duty and vengeance uh wonder woman um does this ritual the hikatea where she's honor bound to eternally protect uh, a, a a woman by the name of danielle uh, wellis wells oh, god it's been a while since i read this thing um but basically um uh, danielle uh killed a uh a sex trafficker drug dealer who murdered her sister and batman is basically looking for danielle and wants to take her in and so what you end up with is you know wonder woman's sense of duty uh, and of protecting the oppressed goes up against batman's need for for justice and they have basically what i like to refer to as a philosophical throwdown because these two characters are not very well matched power level wise um and it is, it's really a no-win situation for, for Wonder Woman. Does she break her oath? Does she turn her back on justice? Like, how does she deal with Batman, who keeps knocking at her at the door for embassy, so to speak? Really, her window. Um, and, and that is, uh, I think, a really cool story to use as sort of a first meeting between Batman and, and Wonder Woman on the, on the big screen in this new cinematic universe, because you right away establish how they are similar and how they are different. And it 
it doesn't end really with the two beating the snot out of each other, you know, if, if you know what I mean. In fact, Batman has some of his best moments in that story because he so understands, like, you know, Diana's culture that he even, like, <laughs> he even does some really cool stuff in there that basically, quote-unquote, you know, ingratiate himself to her by by respecting her culture. And it's it's a very, very cool story. Um, so I, I think an Amazon's movie would be fantastic. Um, I think we need to go to Themyscira and really revel in that culture. But if we have to reestablish a new Wonder Woman, I think this particular story would be really, really cool as a as a new standalone Wonder Woman movie. Something very, very different from what we've seen so far. Okay, now I'm obsessed with seeing Pattinson do that. I have to have it. My God, I just want to. I just want to see that scene of Wonder Woman's boot on Batman's head like, <laughs> in live action. Have, if, if if you look at the cover of the graphic novel, it's like Batman's on the ground and Wonder Woman's boot is just on his face, and it's just it's such a a striking image because there's just no way Batman can take her. And at the same time, he's willing to like, you know, for justice, like stand there and say, listen, you know, I don't care how powerful you are. You're wrong. You know, it's just, it's a really, really cool story. Rucka did some fantastic work on Wonder Woman. All right, Dave, this is now quickly becoming your calling card, but I don't care. I'll call that number all day, every day. Yeah. So I talked about this, I believe last episode with our comic book pitches, but um, you know, the Martian Manhunter has been sort of replaced uh, quote unquote, by other characters in sort of the big seven lineup of the Justice League in recent years. And I think that is such a shame because I think that, you know, Martian Manhunter is such a great character. And in our last episode, which if you haven't listened to, uh, dear loyal listener, you really should go back and listen to because we are delivering some comic book pitches that are pitch perfect, if uh, you appreciate this little pun. Um, but one of my pitches was that I would love to do a 1940s, 1950s set uh, sort of film noir inspired take on the Martian Manhunter, where he's investigating some, he's a PI and he's investigating some potential like alien incursions on Earth. Um, and he's trying to figure out, you know, what these aliens are up to. Um, and it kind of plays with, you know, paranoia and the notion of McCarthyism and all that a little bit. Um, but in the context of a cinematic universe, I think it would be interesting to do that kind of movie and kind of seed. Uh, sort of in the background, the JSA. So we know that, you know, there's just news reports of like these superheroes, there's a Flash, there's a Green Lantern, you know, and we kind of get this this sense that, you know, as I've mentioned before, this is a lived-in universe. Plus, um, and I want to get back to this at the end of our big talk today, uh, there is uh, a very, very cool place we can take this if we're leading up to a new Justice League movie where we can lay some important seeds for the Justice League movie uh, right here in this 1950s Martian Manhunter flick. Um, And I'll talk more about that. But I think it's important to have kind of what they tried to do, I think, in a little bit with Wonder Woman, but but didn't didn't really um, uh, capitalize on in the DCEU, which is that you have a long-lived character who's been around, you know, forever. And you can use that character as an in to some of the past of the DC universe. Um, I think the Martian Manhunter is perfect for that kind of thing. You know, saying he's been on earth for a long time. He's been hiding among us, you know, using his shape shifting abilities. He's a natural in to see the past of the DC universe. Um, And also a character that is long lived enough that we can then very easily bring him into the future justice league. Um, 
So I, I think a Manhunter from Mars movie, and I, that's what I would call it. I wouldn't even call it Martian Manhunter. Manhunter from Mars, right away calling back to like these these 1950s sci-fi movies. Uh, I think that would be a really cool in to saying, hey, you know, this DC universe that we're putting up on the big screen has a past, and there are very cool things that happened back then. And eventually you could even spin, you know, a Justice Society movie into that very, very easily. Listen, man, I'm I'm always here for it. I think shape-shifting characters are some of my favorites in all of storytelling i mean you can go back to like the folkloric shapeshifters the lokis and even the the indigenous native american stories of the tricksters i think it's always a fascinating storytelling device i'm i mean mystique when done right not x-men films where they're just what if we made her naked um like god jesus uh but anyways uh, I think Mystique is one of the most fascinating characters in all of comics. Um, her inspirations. Uh, I immediately fell in love with John Jones in the uh, Justice League animated series, Justice League Unlimited. Uh, immediate, immediate favorite. I think it's such a smart storytelling device. I absolutely love it. And I'm, I'm here for John Jones. That was, that was probably my favorite thing about the, the Snyder cut was his inclusion. And um, so I, I really, really want to see him represented well. I totally agree. And I think this kind of thing uh, w- w- would do a fantastic job of establishing who he is. And then we can have a lot of fun with him when he gets into the Justice League. Which brings us to your next movie. And oh boy, oh boy, uh, there, there's a lot to unpack here, my friend. Let's go. Listen, like I said, I'm just coming with vibes. One of the few things that I've read independently is... Um, Green Lanterns with with Simon Baz and my beloved Jessica Cruz. I I love uh, I love Kyle Rayner too. I love Guy Gardner, John Stewart. I love the Green Lanterns, and um, you know we tried to fix the Ryan Reynolds debacle of a film. Um, it's been dragged through the mud and poked fun at for over a decade, but you can't. You're at, at some point we're going to have to divorce ourselves from that film and move forward because. Green Lantern, you know, even in my limited exposure and limited knowledge of DC, it's essential to it. You have to have Green Lantern, uh, or the Green Lantern Corps, well represented. And so, I'm, I'm, and and one of the things that was wrong about uh, the the Ryan Reynolds film is, you know, Oa and the Guardians. It was just a blip scene. Like some of the my favorite scene of that movie is when. You had Kilowog in the training montage, but that was like less than 10 minutes of the film. So I I think you got to lean into that. If you give me a full-fledged Green Lantern Corps where you get to see all the different lanterns um, well-represented, I would love for some practical effects rather than relying heavily on CGI. Um, but I want... I Especially want for the, green, the suit. Yeah, I want, I want the Green Lanterns well-represented, man. I, I'm dying for it. I, the HBO Max series that they keep teasing, then taking away, then giving back, I'm desperate for it. I, I'm not sure where to start with this. I think there's, there's such a massive lore behind Green Lantern, and we've always had so many Earth-bound 
uh, Green Lanterns um, and, you know, a series of successions. And then those characters stuck around and then we added some more. And there's supposed to be one Earth Green Lantern. And even, you know, that they're even now commenting on that in the comic book sometimes. Like, why do we have so many Earth Green Lanterns suddenly? You know, there's Hal Jordan, there's Kyle Rayner, there's John Stewart, there's Guy Gardner. And we have Simon uh, Biles, we have Jessica Cruz. Uh, and now, of course, the beloved, uh, the star of Far Sector. I love you so, uh, Joe Mullen. Uh, there's so many Earth Green Lanterns. Uh, you cannot easily make a movie that has eight Earth Green Lantern leads, um, and, and then and then you know lean into that as as a single movie. Some kind of building has to happen here. Uh, on the on the flip side, though, and this is this is not going to be a popular take. I don't think we should start with Hal Jordan. I no. think Hal Jordan no. on the big screen has no, been thanks. tainted right now. Nothing. Um, Hell, in the comics, we don't we don't really need him in the comics. <laughs> uh, there's going to be a lot of Hal Jordan fans really mad at us for that, but uh, I'm all not saying eight, that Hal Jordan can ever appear. All eight of them. All eight of them are going to be yeah. mad at us. I don't think that we necessarily have to say that Hal Jordan will never appear or that he never existed. I think it's fair to say that Hal Jordan is existed and is missing in action and his ring is picking a successor, whatever. Um, m- a lot of people are going to say the natural place to go is 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 John Stewart, and I think that is a natural place to go. However, I don't think it is the only natural place to go. I think that we need to maybe take a chance of establishing multiple Green Lanterns. It would, for example, be interesting to have John Stewart as a experienced Green Lantern, and let's say a Kyle Rayner, for example gets Hal Jordan's ring after Hal Jordan goes MIA and then Stewart has to has to train Rainer. That might be interesting, right? And then you have the experienced ring slinger and you have the the entry level character that is sort of the audience surrogate that allows us to see all this. And we can have a lot of these other Green Lanterns popping up um, as secondary characters to that story. You know, you can have Guy Gardner pop up and make fun of Kyle Rayner's, you know, um, uh, inexperience. You know, you can have a, a Joe Mullen popping up and and saying, well, she's heading out because she's, you know, she's the one that always goes like to the furthest reaches and is, has these long duties where she's gone for a while. And you can even spin that off into a far sector movie eventually, right? If you want. But I think what we need to establish is a Hal Jordan was around, but he is not around right now. B we pick one of the earth green lanterns. That's the newbie. And one of the earth green lanterns, that's the experienced person. We create a a relationship there that allows us to explore the green lantern core. And the entire movie takes place in space. We leave Earth and we don't come back. Unlike yes. the last Green Lantern yeah. movie, yeah. which was was you know two seconds on Oa and right back to Earth. Earth, we have all sorts of heroes on Earth, but this is the this is basically the Guardians of the Galaxy of the of the DC universe. It is you know you're out there in the wild wild reaches of space and seeing all this crazy DC universe space crap, and that's what what Green Lantern Corps should be all about. I think that would be the easiest in for the franchise and it would be very very different from what we've seen before and then you have your choice of picking which green lantern you want to include in justice league you know because you have you've established several and you have you know the pick of the litter and you can justify anybody oh i'm just the one who's currently on the earth rotation right we're all rotate through duties on earth and i'm currently the one on earth rotation the other the other people are out in space right now you know like that then you have the creative freedom for whoever makes a justice league movie to pick whatever green lantern they want to put on the justice league Okay, but then 
all I want. I love the idea of like training day, but you know, like John's not evil at the end. Um, yeah. But phase two, then I want my buddy cop, uh, Simon and Jessica, because like, I, I just love that. Like they can't stand each other, but then they're like their best friends. They eat pancakes. Like, give me that. That's the phase two film. And see, that's the thing too. Like you don't even have to always have the same leads for Green Lantern Corps movies because there's so many fascinating characters in the franchise. You can take these characters and you can put them to rest for a movie and then go over here and do these characters a little bit. You can do a far sector movie, you know, you can do, well, this Green Lantern is going to be in the Justice League movie. So now the next Green Lantern Corps movie is going to focus on these characters. Like that is, that is a very possible thing to do with, uh, with Green Lantern movies, I think. All right, Dave, now on to a character that I'm increasingly ambivalent about, especially since uh, the advent of a character or an actor that shall not be named. Well, let me change that for you, because I'm going to go ahead and unequivocally say, and this is also going to make a certain segment of the fandom mad, Barry Allen needs to be put to rest for a while. Uh, I, I think the character has now starred in eight seasons of a CW show. He's got a movie coming out on the big screen, which may or may not do well. And regardless of whether it does well or not, I think it's fair to say that given a certain actor's uh, recent proclivities, that Warner is probably not going to want to continue with that actor and that interpretation of the character. So uh, I propose that we go to the Wally Westwell. I think it's time for Wally to be the Flash on the big screen. Um, and that is easy for me to say because Wally West is my Flash. I, I missed most of the Barry Allen golden age, right? I'm a post-crisis on Infinite Earths kid. Um, so my Flash growing up was always Wally West. Um, and so I, I think it's a natural place because the Flash... I would say even more than any other character in, in DC is a character built on the notion of legacy. There's Jay Garrick, right? There's, there's Barry Allen. Then there's Wally West. There's a, a straight through line of the flash mantle being passed along from generation to generation. You can say that there was a Barry Allen. You can say that Barry Allen died in action or whatever. And that Wally West was his sidekick and that now that Barry is gone, he has to sort of step up and become the next flash. And you're dealing with notions of legacy. You can even have a Barry Allen in some flashbacks. You don't even have to be really specific, you know, because we're talking about speed force stuff. You can have his face blurry or you can only see him from the back because you're seeing, seeing him from the perspective of Wally, who's kind of always chasing Barry. So it's very symbolic, right? He's trying to live up to his legacy now. Um, so you can be very sort of non-specific about Barry, um, and at the same time you have you know a history there, and you have a, a Wally who's trying to live up to that. And there's a really good comic book storyline uh, written by Mark Wade from way back when uh, called "Born to Run," and I think that is a perfect subtitle for a Flash movie, "The Flash: Born to Run." I mean, how does it get better than that, right? You have a uh, you know, uh, Born to Run was sort of a history of Wally West. You know, it does a lot of like, here's how he got his powers, sort of like Wally West year one. You know, here's how he, um, you know, was trained by Barry Allen. And then here's how he became the Flash. And you can use this as a jumping off point and kind of seed some of those things into flashbacks, right? This doesn't have to be an origin story movie, but it can be um, part of the inspiration of a movie and you have a sort of uh, a present day through line of Wally becoming the Flash 
um, and having to take on his first major, you know, supervillain. Maybe we just do like the rogues. I, I love the rogues. I think it's, it's so sad that we always have to go to like um, reverse flash every stinking time. It always has to be a speedster. I absolutely love the rogues combined. Uh, they always have been a really cool challenge for the flash. And and you have Wally West trying to, you know, come into his own and and become his own flash living up to, to Barry Allen's legacy, but at the same time also trying to, you know, carve out his own um, space as the Flash, as a, a Flash who's who's his own man and very different even from Barry Allen in a lot of ways. Um, so let's go ahead and put Barry Allen to rest. We can say he existed. You can always even like do a return storyline eventually if the movies are successful. Um, there are all sorts of ways to go, but I think the starting point, so we can put Barry Allen to rest for a while and show something new and different in a Flash movie, is that we go to Wally West. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, so, I don't know what it is. It's just maybe it's even the power set. Speedsters have never really done it for me. Um, I watched the first couple of seasons of The of the Flash. It was interesting, mostly because Candace Patton is super hot. Um <laughs> But this is true. Uh, um, you know, the only time that I've really kind of clicked with the Flash is Broken Record, the the Justice League animated series. Like Michael Rosenbaum, who's no stranger to DC characters, um, really got me with the one liners and the snark. So that was fun. Um, so the and times I've that's Wally West. So and I have enjoyed in 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 doing my Dick Grayson deep dive him showing up in 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 uh, Dick's comics so that's been fun, um, but I'm I'm willing to be open minded about this and to be won over because I've been buried to death. And I think that is that is right there my point. I think we've all been buried to death. I think eight eight seasons of Run Barry Run um, on the CW and now we're getting a Barry Allen movie. I think it's fair to lean into the notion of legacy a little bit and and let a different flash shine on the big screen um and and maybe make that successful and then you can always you can always bring back barry at some point i mean he came back in the comic books too and do a version of barry allen but but just much like hal jordan i think the character has been tainted at this point when it comes to general audiences and we just need something different why go you know see this see this Flash movie on the big screen when you just watch eight years of Flash episodes on the CW and you're just getting the same thing in a slightly different packaging, you know, like let's make it worth the audience's time and do something completely different. All right, Chris, that brings us to, uh, (laughs) that, that brings us to something we're going to wholeheartedly agree on. Listen, this is just, I'm in my Dick Grayson era, guys. You're going to have to bear with me because the lasting legacy of me, I just finished up playing Gotham Knights. Wonderful game. I have a few nitpicks, but all in all, very, very very much worth the price of admission. Love that game. Um, and so I'm, I'm completely obsessed with Dick Grayson now. Um, and I want a Dick movie. I, I want the Batman and the Robin. <laughs> I want Robin... On the freaking big screen. And all due respect to Chris O'Donnell, he was doing the best. But it was not the greatest iteration of Robin we've ever seen. All right. So I I really want a sequel to the Batman. I'm not sure of the villain that I want. Um, I think it's wide open. There's such a great rogues gallery that you could do so many different directions. You could go Victor Freeze. 
You could go um, anybody. Any, I said, so, okay, anywhere but the Joker. I swear to God, if we get the Joker again, I'm going to riot and I'll burn the whole thing to the ground. Please, no more Joker. Okay. Can we also just cancel the the folier à deux? Like, I'm I'm good. We don't need any more Joker. Okay. So any villain but the Joker in the Batman and the Robin, or you can change it, whatever. I want I want Dick Grayson represented. Make him younger. I'm not sure the fan cast. More on that in a future episode, maybe. But I would love I'd love to see that that Pattinson universe. Um, I also need I need a shitload more of Andy Circus. That man is like flexing on all of our favorite properties. He was incredible in Black Panther. He was incredible uh, in Andor, uh, so Star Wars. And he was incredible in The Batman. The only nitpick that I have is we didn't get near enough of him. I love Andy Serkis, man. So uh, I'm super excited for the Batman sequel, and I just hope we finally get Robin. Not that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt nonsense we got in The Dark Knight Rises, because whatever the crap that was. May I present to you uh, the perfect basis for such a movie? Because I, too, want Robin on the big screen rather desperately. And I understand there's some trepidation about putting, you know, Batman with a 9 or 10-year-old as a sidekick, you know, with people aiming guns at them and shooting at them. I don't think Robin necessarily needs to be that young. He does need to be under 18, but like a 15-year-old Robin, I think, would be perfectly fine for something like this. You don't have to go right away 8 years old or something. But I want a Robin on the big screen. I think Robin is essential to the Batman mythos. I think there is a reason that Robin was there from the get-go in the Batman TV show back in the 60s. And yes, I know that thing was campy as crap by design. But uh, look, Batman and Robin is such a, a, a phrase. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Like You know the two things go together. And yet, in modern iterations, we always shy away from a Robin. Um and I think you can very easily write a story that makes an argument for there being a Robin. Not just because it deals with Bruce Wayne's loneliness and for him wanting to maybe um, you know, save this kid and prevent him from becoming like him, which if you you know know Nightwing in the comics, Bruce succeeded. Like Dick is not Batman. You know, he's he's a very different kind of guy. Um, he he's much more lighthearted. He's not completely, you know, obsessed and consumed by his obsessions, right? So Obviously, Bruce did something right in raising this kid. Um, but I think uh, you can make a very easy argument for saying, look, this kid is going to go out there and he's going to try to do this one way or another. But at least if I train him, he has a chance of surviving, you know? Like this kid is out for it and, and I have to temper him or, or he's going to get himself killed. So I think you can make an argument for uh, a Robin in, even in a movie. But I, I think the place to go here is, I'm sorry to say, Chris, it's, it's Jeff Loeb. And I know, and, and I know, we have our issues with Jeff these days. But if you flash back into the late '90s, you and I both know that Jeff Loeb wrote one of the most definite Batman stories that continues to be used as inspirations for movies, from you know Batman Begins all the way to the Batman, and that's the Long Halloween. There is a sequel to the Long Halloween. It's called Dark Victory. It's once again with Tim Sale. It's fourteen issues. Uh, it's very, very cool in that it centers on a series of murders involving Gotham City police officers by a killer known as the Hangman. And you have this Hangman storyline, which is the underlying mystery, which is something that Matt Reeves really likes to lean into is, you know, investigating and stuff. There is a very cool um, thing going on that's uh, sort of a sequel 
um, to the whole Falcone uh, mob falling apart, uh, which is perfect because we had, you know, Falcone in the Batman. So here you have Two-Face trying to sort of mop up the rest of uh, Falcone's territory and become sort of the new crime boss of Gotham City. Uh, So you can have some fun with with Two-Face here as a villain. And it is the origin of Robin. So Dick Grayson is a character in Dark Victory, and I think Dark Victory handles that extremely well. So I think using Dark Victory as sort of a, a inspiration and even a subtitle, I think the Batman Dark Victory sounds really cool, right? Um, you can you can have something that is in the tone of uh, of Matt Reeves the Batman, and also at the same time brings in and establishes Dick Grayson Robin. So I think we have something here uh, by looking at Dark Victory. And if you've not read Dark Victory, this is low before he lost his mind. It's it's very very good. There's no cannibalism involved, right? Uh, no, no. Uh, the, the blob <laughs> does not eat the wasp in this one, believe it or not. All right, so I know exactly what I'm doing after we hit the stop button because I'm I'm desperate for it. This is how desperate I am, y'all. I'm giving Titans uh, a sixth attempt. That's how desperate I am. Just don't do it, man. Just don't I, do it. Doctor Casting no, is so in. good and the writing is so bad. I'm 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 in. I'm in. I'm almost. I'm I'm over halfway through season one. I might as well. Oh my but yeah, God. the casting, the casting is, so is so good and the writing it's is so, so bad. Oh. It's so good. I'm just looking for glimmers, the the golden flakes and the turds because I'm, oh. I mean, Anna Diop. I mean, I, I'm I'm on a a bender today. Like it's a constant theme. She's so great. Anna Diop is so great, and and the dialogue, it's so bad. And and here's the thing about why we need Robin on the big screen is actually perfectly flushed out in Titans. Jason Todd is a compelling character only when he's juxtaposed against others around him. The problem that Correct I have them. mostly with Titans is everybody is Jason Todd in this like thing like Dick Grayson is so hilariously misunderstood by the writing staff on this. Like they made him yep. Jason Todd, Jason Todd shows up and we're like, what's the difference? And so that's why we need Robin on the big screen. We just have Batman sulking by himself. And it was great in the Batman. It was fine for the first film, but I don't want it to go down the road that the Nolan franchise did. You have to have you have to have a juxtaposition. You have to give Batman like something to play off of. And it gives it such a it's such a great wellspring of content. And like I I it needs to be done. So I'm uh And the way they left the Batman too is, you know, that he realizes that he can't be out for vengeance, that he has to stand for more, that he has to be you know, a, 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 a symbol of hope for people to some extent too, right? And that is a great place to then go and say, here's this kid who went through something like I did. I have to, I have to save this kid, you know? It, it's, a, it's a natural evolution for where the first movie left off, I think. And, and you can easily make that, like you were talking about having an underage kid under his care and putting him in harm's way. You could easily make that like he's a rebellious teenager and Bruce tells him he can't do this and he forbids it. And the being the rebellious teenager that he is, he goes and does it anyway because he believes it's the right thing. Uh, And then he, you know, Bruce 
bequeaths and and relents after much debate, much hullabaloo. And then he's like, well, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it under my supervision, under my care, with my training and all of that stuff. Exactly. I think that works perfectly for what you're trying to do. And it's, it's perfectly realistic. All right, Dave. So you teased it before, but what is this all leading up to? So if we're going to go ahead and we're going to establish uh, these Green Lanterns and we're going to reestablish Superman and we have our Batman and we're going to, you know, play around with the Wonder Woman mythos a little bit and we're going to pass the mantle along to the fl- to a new Flash and we got the Martian Manhunter back in the past investigating some alien incursion in the 50s. What is this all leading to? The, the only logical place it can lead when you're asking me. And that is a Justice League story written by Grant Morrison. Boom. There it is. Uh, we we all you know have seen what happens when you put the cart before the horse, and when uh, you know you have um, people going directly to the well of the new gods and dark side, right? And I don't think it necessarily worked really well because there wasn't a lot of build to that. So how do you establish the Justice League here? How do you bring these people together? Very simple. Grant Morrison and Howard Porter, when they relaunched uh, JLA back in the day. Um, they did a storyline that did not rely on any, you know, major, um, quote unquote, established, famous villains. There was not, no Sorrow the Conqueror to start out with, right? Uh, you didn't have Dark Side in issue one. No, what you had is you had an alien superhero team landing on Earth and saying that they're going to fix the planet. Only some really fishy stuff is going on with them. And although they're running around and doing stuff like growing food in the desert and stuff, and the public loves them, uh, everybody's very clear that there's something fishy going on. Batman investigates, Martian Manhunter is looking into stuff. You know, everybody's kind of like pulling in the same direction, trying to figure out what's going on, which is a great, great way of... um, getting these characters together for the very first time on the big screen. And then we can beautifully tie this back to, you know, Manhunter from Mars, which is that, you know, he found evidence in the 50s that there are some shape-shifting aliens running around Earth like him. But how is that possible if all the Martians are gone? And what do we get? All these quote-unquote alien um, superheroes are actually... Martians. They're white Martians, right? The people who killed Martian Manhunter's family. And so uh, the Justice League has to pull together and defeat these white Martians who are, you know, using their shape-shifting powers to imitate powers of like the Justice League. So you have a guy who's like powerful like Superman. You have a guy who runs fast like the Flash, you know? And so you have these people facing off with each other with like dark mirrored versions of themselves almost. And each hero gets to kind of prove why they are um, who they are. They're better than the imitators, right? They're the they're the OGs. They're the originals. They're the, what we like to call in DC sometimes the big seven, right? And so I think that is the perfect... Uh, jumping off point for a Justice League movie. You know, go ahead and put the new gods and dark side over here. You can always adapt that later. You don't want to come right away with something that complex as the new gods. That is like, that's like Thanos level stuff right there. You need to establish that. You need to, you know, play with that in the background for a few movies and build to it, you know? Um, But, you know, having the white Martians uh, as the, the villains for the first, uh, for the first Justice League movie and the reason that they all get together, that that's where it's at. Let's go ahead and go to Morrison for some inspiration. It's also something that people wouldn't expect. It's something a little different. You're not going right away with the biggest name you can pull out of a hat. You know, instead, 
you know, uh, you, you do the Avengers thing, you know, the Avengers did the whole uh, Chitauri invasion there under Loki. Like, you know, it's not exactly the biggest en- enemies that you're going to go straight for in an Avengers story, but it works for that movie uh, overall. Um, and so I think, you know, going with the White Martians would work really well for for this new cinematic universe, Chris. Oh, my God. I feel I feel like I'm almost tearing up. This is one I've actually read. I feel so special. Yeah, I remember. And it's one. good, it's, isn't it? It's so great. <laughs> it's so great. Oh, man. And I think this is a great it's it's a great bait and switch because then you have immediate controversy because they're like they're doing this to help people how could you do this justice league whatever so that 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 has like some some built-in like conflict for the heroes so yeah i i love i love what i've read of of morrison porter jla and i need to dive back in now that i've got this ultra subscription that's the other lasting effect of gotham knights i loved it so much i bought the ultra subscription to dc uh universe infinite yeah, I'm on Ultra as well, and I'm loving it, man. You know, it's funny too because you can have you can have Green Lantern standing there in the story and being like, "Dude, my ring doesn't recognize these guys. Like, my ring knows pretty much anything in the universe. Who the heck are these aliens? I can't even identify their race. What in the world is going on?" Right. So you you you're establishing this beautiful mystery right away, and then you have you know you have Pattinson's Batman, who is all about the mysteries, right? Who gets to do do his investigative stuff and try to infiltrate, you know, the, and, and it's just there's there's so much fun to be had with this particular story uh, and adapting it for the big screen, I think. And and a, a wonderful tie back to, to Martian Manhunter and why he's here to begin with. And, and we're dealing with his past and, you know, it's just a, just a lot of, you know, um, a, a lot of feels there for him too, because he's dealing with an enemy he thought that had been vanquished, you know, and they killed his family and he has, has to deal with all those emotions. There, there's just, there's so much good stuff here. Yeah, and I think I, I've complained about this before, but I think um, one of my greatest frustrations with so many things of content where we're over flooded is is a lot of people don't have any patience. And I think something that Avengers did with, you know, a character like Loki being the main protagonist with um, an interchangeable army like the Chitauri is it you had to wait and be patient. We don't need to rush into dark side because if you rush into dark side and these big name villains, it's not going to be as satisfying. And then what do you do to top that? Exactly. I mean, that's a problem, right? Um, and I also think, you know, there's a general tendency of acting like dark side is somehow um, the be all end all justice league uh, villain because he's so powerful. Um, but to me, you know, like he, he is not, the essential Justice League villain in a lot of ways, you know, Darkseid and the New Gods and all that were primarily established in like the Superman books, you know? Um, so I know he's been conflagrated. There is, he's kind of like put out there as like, this, this is the ultimate Justice League villain. To me, uh, there's so many more interesting Justice League villains. You know, Starro the Conqueror is a in, more interesting Justice League villain, villain to me than Darkseid, if you ask me. There's more, there's more. You and there. that damn starfish. <laughs> Dude, I tell you, like, like some of some of the coolest Justice League stories are like Star of the Conqueror is taking over the world, you know. And how 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 do you yeah? Like, imagine a story where you have every member of the Justice League with one of those Starro things on their face, and they've been taken over, and the last man standing is Batman. 
You know, how is Batman going to save the world when his all his more powerful teammates have been starrowed? You know, there's a movie there, you know? Big guy comes from New Genesis and Superman has to punch him around is not nearly as fun as something where you get to where you get to go to the essence of the character, right? What Darkseid has going for him is very very powerful and he's a dictator. Boom. That's all you got there. You know, not that he's not that he's a bad character or something. I just think when it comes to the Justice League, you can have more fun that with, with the key, the key, than you can have fun with Darkseid. But you know, maybe that's just me. I like some variety in my in my storytelling. Before we wrap up here, this is me again saying, put Brainiac as the main villain in a film. Damn it. That's all I want. I want Brainiac. Do Injustice 2 is one of the most ridiculously well thought out storylines for a video game. Just literally just make that a movie. It's so perfectly done. <laughs> I have my issues with Injustice just because of the comic books. They're really rough for me <laughs> to, to survive. Oh, I, I, haven't even, I haven't read a single one. Oh, evil Superman all day, every day is not, is not good for my soul. I love Superman too much for that. All right, that wraps up our Byword Big Talk. What movies did we miss in Phase 1? What ones would you include? And what should we do in Phase 2? Sound off on social media, at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram, or individually, that Nerd Dave and that Nerd Chris. But when we come back from our final break, Nerd Commendations rise again. We are back for the fan favorite segment where we tell you all the good stuff. You know it as Dave, you're incredibly reductive in this title. Yeah. What can I say? Hey, I'm, uh, I'm reading indie comics again. Um, only this time I went to the well of a, uh, fairly, um, well-known, <laughs> uh, writer and a fairly well-known artist, but it is a creator owned independent. So here I am. Let's talk about Powers for a second, uh, a, which is written by Brian Michael Bendis and uh, illustrated by Michael Avon Oming. Um, and let's be honest here, uh, this sucker has been all over the place. I can't even tell you where it was published because it was published by Image, then it was published by Marvel under Icon, then it was published at DC for a little while under Jinx World. Um, and now Jinx World, the imprint moved over to, to, to Dark Horse, I think. Um which means that now they're like reprinting everything from the beginning. I think the first volume was just reprinted, the first trade paperback. So it's hitting uh, the market all over again. Time to, um, you know, talk about this thing since it's hitting the market all over again. Everything is going to become available slowly again. Uh, definitely worth reading. I finally was able to finish this sucker. Um, and I have to say, uh, th this is uh, this is good. So powers, uh, pretty uh, mature reader level stuff. A lot of a uh, lot of sex, a lot of violence. I mean, you know, it's it's very much uh, of that ilk. But powers is set in a world where um, superpowers are pretty common. Uh, there's a lot of superheroes running around, and there are two detectives, uh, Christian Walker and Dina Pilgrim, who are police officers in uh, the Chicago Homicide Department. But they in a specific department that deals only with cases that involve powers, namely people with superpowers. That's what they're referred to here, not metahumans or anything like that. They're just referred to as powers. Walker is, is actually a former superhero who lost his powers, and uh, when he lost his powers, decided to become a police officer. 
Uh, the first arc uh, is called Who Killed Retro Girl, um, and it involves um, Walker uh, having to investigate the death of a former teammate of his, uh, and uh, he is assigned a new partner in Dina Bil- Pilgrim, who is not exactly what I would call quote-unquote stable. And for those listeners who have read the entire series, that may be an understatement. Dina Pilgrim is messed up but a very very cool character uh and so they have to uh try to investigate uh who killed retro girl as the uh, series progresses you get more and more lore associated with uh you know walker and who he was in the past and uh that might be uh surprising in a lot of ways there's a lot more history there than people initially might suspect um superheroes come and go die and 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 are replaced by legacies and finally you know you kind of come to the point where you realize that walker in particular uh has a a long running uh let's say antagonist that in the final storyline he's gonna have to face off with one more time and stop him from ending the world even though he doesn't have superpowers anymore so there's you know there's cop procedural there but there's also some really cool world building going on there's a lot of lore associated with this um i have to say the art on here uh reminds me of a more um fluid uh a more stylized almost more more jagged uh, version of like something like what we see in like Batman the animated series or something. It's very very cool um, and very distinctive. Um, the storytelling is really good. You can kind of see how in the, especially in the early goings how Bendis kind of cut his teeth with this one um, and and how his storytelling sort of evolved uh, before it kind of rolled into something like you know Ultimate Spider Man. I actually think you know once you sit down and read like. The, the breadth of all of powers. I think it's probably some of Bendis's best stuff. It stands right up there with his with his Ultimate Spider-Man run, I think, as just really, really good, although very different. And um and you know, I'm I've been a guy who's been um critical of Bendis, particularly some of the stuff that he did once he moved over to DC Comics. Um I wasn't a huge fan of his Superman run, for example. But I think that that powers is just a really fine uh creator owned run um i'm a big big fan of this i i enjoyed it tremendously um and although it's it's complete now i don't know if they're ever gonna like go back uh and and try to make more stories in this universe or not but the story as it stands is complete and it's totally worth a read yeah, I'm very intrigued by this. Uh, I've never, I've never heard of it before, so I'm definitely gonna be checking this one out because it has a lot of the elements that I enjoy in storytelling. Um, I totally agree. Just looking at it um, uh, with the Batman the Animated Series uh, comparison, but I'm, I'm definitely gonna have to check this one out. Yeah, it's it's very cool, and there was that very short lived. Uh, television adaptation back when when PlayStation tried to have like a PlayStation TV network or something, <laughs> and they actually picked and uh, yeah, and they actually picked this up and made a made a TV show out of it, um, which didn't stick, uh, you know. But uh, it, it's sad because a good adaptation of this, I think it would be it it has sort of a, a natural um, built in serialized t- uh, sort of TV show thing going on where you have the procedural cases, but you also have the lore behind you know, Walker and who he is and what he did in the past. I think it, it lends itself to that kind of adaptation much more than something like a feature film, I think. Um, 
And I, I, w- I would love a good adaptation of something like this. But yeah, I mean, Powers, read it. Uh, it's really, really good. Chris, I'm not sure, man. Come at me. Should I really do this to myself? I don't know. But why is it good? Tell me. Listen, uh, I treated myself early to a holiday gift, but Marvel's Midnight Suns is a tactical RPG that was recently released by Fire Axis Games and Marvel. Uh, and it is truly a unique game in every sense of the word. There's elements of like the Sims. You have to build relationships with your characters. And once you like, you have to go like hang out with the different characters. Um, you have to increase your friendship, do nice things for them. And as you increase the relationship with them, then you unlock, you unlock abilities for those characters and team up bonuses between your your hunter created your your created character hunter um and them as like a team up bonus the the gameplay is completely unique it's card based and it's a turn based rpg uh it is it is incredibly unique and um i i really enjoy it um it's really, really wild. I mean, it's like the dark magic stuff. Um, so basically, here's here's the long story short. Dr. Faustus of Hydra uses dark magic and science to raise Lilith from her eternal slumber in the belief that her power will enable Hydra to conquer the world. Within the following months, a star known as the Midnight Sun begins approaching Earth and destabilizes magic, heralding the return of Lilith's master, the elder god Cthon. Uh, so it's just like a really, really cool game. You get to play as, as an Xbox gamer, I get to finally play a video game with Spider-Man in it. Um, you're low, Yuri Lowenthal from the, the PlayStation games returns as a voice actor. Lyrica O'Connor, uh, returns to voice, uh, Nico Minoru from the Runaways film series or, uh, television. So Blade is in it. He's a great character. He's really fun. The writing on this is snappy. It's funny. I love Robbie Reyes as the ghostwriter. And for me alone, the ability to like, you know, I've chronicled my health issues and my, you know, the reasons that that turn-based RPG are essential to me and a welcome change from typical video games. Um, the, the gameplay alone and the reliance on relationship building between characters is something I've I've never seen in a video game before. So I'm still at the early stages of this, this game, but I'm massively enjoying this. I like RPGs, but I'm going to freely admit that one of my great blind spots has always been tactical RPGs. I don't know why uh, tactical RPGs never quite meshed so well with me. It seems weird, especially considering I like, you know, uh, turn-based uh, strategy games like Civilization, but for some reason, tactical RPGs never quite captivated me. But I think you might have uh, sold me on this one. I might have to get Midnight Suns a try. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can, uh, go ahead and get the season pass. It's it's a bit pricey, but um, but uh, the, the, there are future characters to come unlocked. Storm is going to be there. Um, Scarlet Witch... Uh, so I, I'm really, really excited about the future of this game. Uh, Morbius, Venom, Deadpool, upcoming season pass characters. So uh, the the roster in and of itself is fun. Um, the writing the writing on this game is is one of the biggest pleasant surprises as well. But I'm I'm massively enjoying it. Did you say Morbius? Is it Morbin time? <laughs> oh, it might be. Well, whenever that character releases on the uh, season pass. 
All right, well, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm going to have to check this one out, man. That wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for listening and playing along with us. If you like what you hear, please head to your favorite podcasting platform, follow, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, you name it, we're there. Even our fancy website, nerdbyword.com. And how would you go about setting up a new DC Cinematic Universe? Why don't you hit us up on social media? You can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. Um, as of this uh, recording, Hive is not back up yet, but both uh, Chris and I have, I think, uh, set up a, a shop on Hive as well. Um, and you can find me, uh, that nerd Dave, at... Uh, uh, on the Mastodon art server as well. Um, I'm hanging out over there because I just love hanging out with artists. That's just one of my big, uh, big things. I just love artists. They're so awesome. And you can hit up the link in our social media bios uh, for our Discord server so you can come hang with us. You can also find our TeePublic uh, and Redbubble shops there for some cool merch. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.